reading from Psalm 98 this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful no noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we can come together. Lord, we thank you that you are filling this building, Lord, first and foremost with your spirit. Lord, and uh, the faces that you're bringing in, the people you're bringing in, the families you're bringing in. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that uh, we would all make a joyful noise to you. Lord, let our lives be uh, an anthem that continuously sings your praise. Lord, pray for Rick this morning that he brings the word, that you would uh, be with him. Let our hearts be open to hear what you have to say. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is an exciting morning. I think this is the biggest crowd we've had yet. So uh, that's exciting. We've, uh, we've known for a while that uh, God's going to do some pretty amazing things. And so here we go. Uh, last year, we talked about it last week, last Sunday. Last year was this incredible roller coaster ride of God's glory, how he brought us into his space, how he provided this building. And here we are two Sundays into the year. And I'll tell you, in a few months, we're going to be pushing that wall aside and moving that back and hopefully adding some microphones at work and all kinds of good stuff like that. So we're, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for everything that God's provided, thankful that everyone's here. And I hope and I pray that this is a, a blessing to you all and that you'll come back and join us again. All right. Um, like Brent said earlier, we're, we're going to start a, a sermon series today. And it's going to go several weeks, 12 weeks. That's pretty long by sermon series standards. Uh, and what I'm going to do today is, is a little different. So uh, I'm basically going to spend half the time just presenting or, or giving an introduction to this sermon series. The back half of it will be kind of an introduction to one of the spiritual disciplines that we'll be discussing, talking about, learning about during this time. That makes sense? All right. There is a very famous pastor, a very famous writer, theologian by the name of John Piper, and he wrote this in one of his books, Life is war, that's not all it is, but it is always that. Life is war. And if you've been paying attention at all in your daily life, you probably would agree with that statement, that life is, in fact, war. And for some of us, it seems like an like incredible understatement to say that life is war. Everything is a struggle. Everything is conflict. Everything is troublesome. Everything is hard, right? Or am I the only one? I need 
I need audience participation, to be honest with you. So I, I need smiles and some amens on occasion and all that kind of good stuff. All right. So life is hard. Life is war, right? Amen. All right. There we go. This is a fast-learning crowd. I like it. Okay. Life is hard. It's war. It's struggle. Everything. Keeping a New Year's resolution, right? I'm going to diet and I'm going to exercise. I'm going to lose weight. I mean, that's, this, that's not just a battle of the bulge. That is like this war of the will. And then there is the most formidable of wars, and that is raising children. Going to the grocery store and trying to avoid a, like an a international incident, right? Trying to feed them their broccolis and before there's some like global thermal nuclear meltdown, right? It's, it's hard. It's really hard. All of it is. I mean, politics is war. Relationships are war. Health is war. It's all war. War is war. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. And it shouldn't catch us by surprise. And the reason it shouldn't catch us by surprise is that the Bible is very clear and upfront that life, in fact, is war. We come into this world already combatants. We enter the world enemies of God. We enter the world born sinners. And what sin is, is spiritual war against God. It's what sin is, it's guerrilla warfare against God. It is rebellion, insurrection against God. So every time we sin, we're, I mean, we're, we're bowing up to God. Every time. We're, we're fighting, battling, warring against the God who sits enthroned over everything. It's warfare against the all-holy, all-powerful God of the universe. And, and you may not know this, but here's the reality, that in an instant, God could justly annihilate us and reduce us to ash, and it would be a fair thing for him to do. But God desires peace. God desires peace. God sent his son into this world, Jesus. Jesus comes to this world to broker a peace treaty between us and God. And like any other war, and like any other peace treaty, it came at a great expense. It came at a great sacrifice. Jesus went to a cross. He was nailed to it. He shed his blood. He, his body was broken. He died. And through that action, we can be pardoned. So sinners who are rebellious to God can become saints, holy ones, saved for God's possession forever and ever. So whosoever calls in the name of Jesus can enjoy not only peace with God, it gets better, can enjoy the presence of God. In other words, you can enjoy the God of peace. That's good stuff. And so I would say that before anything else, right, the, what matters most is that every single one of us in this room, that we be on the right side of that war. Like, not a single one in this room, I promise you, wants to step into eternity, come to the end of our days, which could happen at any moment, step into eternity, not having signed up on that peace treaty that Jesus negotiated for us. 
Right? We want to embrace that. We, wanna, we want the peace of God. And that's my prayer, is that everyone would just grab onto that treaty, accept Jesus, accept the gospel, embrace him as Lord and Savior, repent of sin, surrender, do an about-face. I'm going to use all the military language today. Do an about-face to Jesus, turn from sin to Jesus, and embrace this peace of God and the God of peace. That's what I hope for everyone. Now, I wish I could tell you that making that decision would make everything easy. And the truth is that it doesn't. Because when we make that decision, guess what? That war is still raging. All we've done is switch sides. The difference is that instead of warring against God, now we're at war with sin, the flesh, as the Bible refers to it, our sin nature. We're at war with the world. We're at war with spiritual forces of darkness that are out there. So instead of being at war with God, we're at war with those things. And the things that used to welcome us as allies will turn against us the second that we switch sides. It's just how it works. And again, the Bible is explicit. It, it is very descriptive that life is war. It shouldn't surprise us. It says that the darkness hates the light. It tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brethren, when the world hates you. So when we switch sides, everything aims their guns at us. Everything turns. Loved ones, friends, family, they turn against us. Our own flesh turns against us. Our own heart will do battle with us. And the enemy out there, the spiritual forces, man, they sure enough aim their armament at us. So just know this, that life is, in fact, war. This side of heaven, it is battle after battle after battle. Being a loving husband is a battle. Being a loving, patient mom is a battle. It's all hard. It's all difficult. It's all war. And here's the fortune, the fortunate part. Ultimate victory is guaranteed. Ultimate victory is already guaranteed. Jesus already took care of that. And he makes it possible for those daily battles that we still have to fight for us to be victorious in those battles. In other words, Jesus makes it so that we don't have to live life here in retreat. We can live life advancing. That sound good? Living life advancing. That's what we want. Now, I've never served on the front lines of actual active military combat. But I've talked to enough who have. And I, I've gathered this much about actual war. It's chaos. It's just chaos. It's unpredictable. It's, they're doing the best they can, but at the end of the day, stuff is flying, and you don't know what's going to happen. And that's why soldiers train the way that they do. That's why generals strategize the way that they do. And the reason why they train and the reason why they strategize is because to win a battle, you must be what? Prepared. And not just prepared, but prepared to the maximum and not just that, you want to be more prepared than the enemy is. The way combat tactics works is that you want to deploy 
your assets before the enemy does. You want to get them to engage, to commit to the battle, but when they're still trying to deploy their assets, you want to be more prepared than that which would attack you. Does that make sense? And after the battle, regardless of the outcome, this is what happens. The military has to reconstitute. You have to reconstitute. And what that means is everything comes back together and they resupply, they rearm, they, they refuel, re-strategize, and then redeploy for the next battle. Because there, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. There will be a next battle. So vehicles have to be refueled. Soldiers have to eat and rest. Weapons have to be checked. Everything has to be reconstituted in order to re- redeploy because there's a battle coming. Now, why am I talking all this war talk? And the reason why is that we're starting this sermon series on what are called spiritual disciplines. So what are spiritual disciplines? They are things like worship, prayer, Bible reading, Bible study, uh, stewardship, good stewardship and giving, generosity. It is serving, serving at church, serving the community, etc., serving God and community. Like uh, enjoying authentic Christian relationships, enjoying being part of God's family and growing in that. All right, now, those aren't all the, the disciplines in Scripture. There's just a handful, but those are the ones that we're going to concentrate on over the next 12 weeks. And I'll be honest with you, I, we could spend 12 weeks on each one of those and then some, but it's, it's an introduction. It's not an exhaustive study. It's just to get us started, which is why we're doing this. So spiritual disciplines... And the reason we want to do this is because each and every one of us is involved in this war. Each and every one of us have to endure these battles each and every day. And God has given us these disciplines. They are tools, they're gifts from God to prepare for the battles. The spiritual disciplines are a way of reconstituting. They're a way of redeploying ourselves back out. It's a way of getting prepared for what is next. And it's not a matter of if something is next. It's a matter of when something is next. So that's why we need them. And so, and it's not just like a worst case scenario where I got to get ready. The spiritual disciplines are also a gift from God to approach God, to enjoy God, to grow closer to him, to become more like Jesus, for his light to shine in us and through us and around us. And if we don't employ these into our life, right, if we don't rely on the Holy Spirit, on God to help us to utilize these spiritual disciplines, what's going to happen is that we're going to live life in retreat as opposed to advancing. What I mean by that, really, is we will miss out on the freedom that Jesus has ensured for us. We're, we won't enjoy the freedom that Jesus himself secured for us to enjoy. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. What that means is that the moment an individual repents of their sin, they do an about face, they turn to Jesus, they surrender to him, they give their life, they place their trust in Jesus. At that moment, the spirit of Christ comes and lives within that individual. 
The Bible refers to that as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And there is a a great freedom from guilt and shame. There's this great freedom from like the captivity and the bondage of sin. There's this great freedom from just all these things, like having any kind of rulership over our lives. That's like saying it negatively. Let me say it positively. We're not just freed from stuff. We are afraid to the presence of God. We are freed to enjoy God himself, his provisions, his blessings, his protection. We are free to enjoy freedom, which is Christ and love and faith and joy. Sound familiar to some of you? Christ frees us to be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled. Be followers of Christ. Now, that is a, a wonderful freedom for us to enjoy. Um, and here's the reality is, we have to stand guard for our freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Then he says, stand firm. So what that means for us, if we're followers of Jesus, that means we're soldiers. And as soldiers, we have to stand firm. Like We have to stand guard. We have to be resolute. We have to dig our heels in so that we can protect the very freedom that Jesus has ensured us, has secured for us. Now, these battles that happen, these things that happen each and every day, they can't ever take away our freedom. That is secured in Christ. But what they can do is rob us of the opportunity to enjoy the freedom. They can rob us. They can come in and infiltrate and attack us and steal our joy in Christ. So we want the spiritual disciplines, we want to employ them in our life in such a way that we stand guard and we protect, we cherish this freedom that Jesus has secured for us. That's what they're for. All this is to get you motivated to do some very hard work. (laughs) There's a huge payoff in these spiritual disciplines. All right, here's my fear. My fear is that way too many people, and I would say the majority of people, walk through life with no understanding that they're in the midst of this huge global war. They're unaware that they're born into sin. They're unaware that there's a hostility between them and God. And so my prayer is that, that, that they would have ears to hear, eyes to see that the truth of God, the grace of God will infiltrate their heart and that they would do an about face, turn from sin, surrender to Jesus, give their life to him, place their faith in him, and enjoy the freedom that God has secured on their behalf through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And here's my fear too, though. Too many of us who are followers of Jesus, we walk around as if it's peacetime. We walk around on earth as if we're walking around in heaven. Meanwhile, shells and mortar rounds are flying all around us. Next thing we know, we're living life in retreat. Next thing we know, we're not enjoying this freedom in Christ. We're not enjoying this presence of God in our lives. Next thing we know, we're just not advancing anything. We're just living in, in retreat. So my question is, 
What if there is a better way than to live in retreat? What if there is a way to actually enjoy the presence of God each and every day in your life? What if there's a way to actually enjoy freedom, I'm talking about real freedom, in your life? Freedom from guilt and shame. Do those sound good? Is that something worth pursuing? Good news is that it's possible. It is very much possible, and that's why we're doing this extensive sermon series, because we want everyone to enjoy a life advancing freedom, not retreating from it. We want everyone to just enjoy their joy, their hope in Christ each and every day, not living defeated. We want everyone to like pursue the presence of God and not have doom and gloom around everything. And why? Because life is war and battles are coming and it will rob us of all that joy if we let it. So we're doing this series on spiritual disciplines and just two more caveats and then we'll get to our first one. Uh, I want to be completely clear about this. Adding any of these spiritual disciplines to your life, worship, prayer, Bible reading, etc., adding it to your life in and of itself doesn't do anything. What I mean by that is that those things do not make a person a Christian. There's nothing magical or mystical about simply adding them to your calendar and your itinerary. What makes a person a Christian is faith in Jesus, period. It is trust in who Jesus is and what he has done, accepting that and embracing that. And the spiritual disciplines, what they do is that they display that we are, in fact, at peace with God. They're not a means by which we procure peace with God. Does that make sense? I don't want there to be any mis- misunderstanding that somehow I add these to my life and all of a sudden I'm a Christian because of it. That's not the way it works. We add them because we're already a Christian and we want to enjoy the blessings of God. We use them with a humble heart, on, relying on the Spirit of God in order to draw closer to God, become more like Jesus, enjoy the freedom, enjoy the presence of God, not live in retreat, etc. That's why we do them. The second thing about the spiritual disciplines is this. Spiritual disciplines require discipline to state the obvious. They are hard. They are hard. They're not easy. Oftentimes, a lot of them are fun. I love singing to Jesus. That, to me, is fun. Okay? Sometimes, prayer by myself not so much fun because I'm busy and my schedule's all messed up and I got other things to do. Well, no, I have to practice that. Well, giving generously to others, not so easy. All right, so the spiritual discipline, some are a little bit easier, depends on the time, depends on who you are. Some are easier than others. They require discipline. No one wants to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, drink 12 eggs, and run through the streets of Philadelphia. But if you do, you will beat Apollo Creed, and you'll become the champion of the world, right? It takes discipline to win, and that's my point. These are battles, and God wants us to win the battles. So he gives us the tools and the resources to win. We just have to be disciplined and committed to do the work. It's hard. Here's the payoff. 
you get to enjoy Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) You do this to experience God in a very real and profound way in your life. You do this to get the strength when your kids are acting up, when the marriage is struggling, when the finances aren't there, when health is not what it should be, when you have all the issues, you practice the disciplines to reconstitute so that you can read redeploy these assets that God has given you in such a way that you live in advance of freedom, not in retreat of it. Everybody excited about these? All right, here we go. That's a long introduction into what the spiritual disciplines are. So we're going to get things started talking about worship. Uh, If you have your Bible, I ask that you turn to Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews, It's in the New Testament. It's toward the end of your Bible. We're going to have the verses on the screen. And we're going to be looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 16. And very specifically, what we're going to be doing is taking a very quick look at the spiritual discipline of worship. That's an easy one, right? Everybody gets that one. So I really don't need to spend that much time on it. We all do that. Very naturally, and in fact, we do. Uh, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a quick overview about what worship is or what it involves. I'm not going to be exhaustive about it. I'm going to actually reserve that for all of next Sunday. Next Sunday, bring a notebook, okay, and listen fast. This week, I'm just going to give a little something, and the reason I'm even going to offer this is to give us all a place from which to um, come, come at this from. Because my my guess is that a lot of us, when we hear the word worship, we may have different thoughts or opinions about what it may be, trying to kind of get us on the same page, point us in the same direction, so we have a place to launch from. Is that that understood? All right, so just a few things about what worship is for, for everyone's sake here. All right, number one, worship is declaring the worth of something. Originally in the English language, the word worship was worth. Ship. You have to invoke, invoke your, your inner Daffy Duck to say that one. Worth-ship. Okay? What worship is, it is the declaring, it's declaring the worth of something. It is declaring or pronouncing that something has value. And in the context of worship, religiously, it really refers to saying that something has ultimate value, that something has supreme worth. So in that sense, every person on the planet is a worshiper because every person on the planet has something or someone that is of supreme value to them. Everyone has something that is of of, uh, maximum value and worth to them, whether it's God or money relationships, sex, TV, entertainment, comfort, whatever it is. Everyone has something that they're willing to die for. Maybe it's themselves. They are the most valuable thing in the universe. Everybody has something that is supreme in their life. Okay? So that's one thing that worship is. The second thing that worship is or that it involves, it involves a posture of humility and of awe. 
you could say this, that our worship of God thrives on our wonder of God. And this is, this is unique. I love, I love it when this happens in the life of an individual. That moment where they get a glimpse of the contrast between their infinite smallness and the immense infinitude that is God. Right, that moment where they realize they're just a little dot on a little dot in the expanse of the universe. And this universe, it's the footstool of God. So worship requires this level of humility, this awe, this awestruck wonder at who God is. That he is capable of speaking the universe into existence. That he knows every star by name, and yet he knows how many hairs are in your head. Amazing that he literally governs over the atoms and the galaxies, yet he cares about every detail of your life. Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty, Alpha, Omega, no beginning, no end. Eternal, immortal, forever, unchanging, self-existing. Nothing calls God. Something calls you. Finite? Infinite. It is our wonder of God that drives our worship of God. And as we come just to get a glimpse of that. We're undone. We're overwhelmed. That's worship. What else is worship? It's a matter of love. We worship what we love. We love what we worship. Jesus himself was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, worship is love. The worship, the obedience, the servitude to God is driven by love. You could say that with no feelings or affection of God there, there is no worship of God. It requires passionate zeal, this love. Like our, our service to God should not be driven out of duty. It should be driven out of delight for who he is and what he's done for us. So it's a matter of, a matter of love. Fourth, worship is gratitude. I just read this recently. This is so cool. You ready? I don't know if you know this, but it's, this is good trivia. Uh, June 20th, 1969, we land on the moon. And everybody's familiar with the famous words, right? One giant leap, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what Buzz Aldrin was doing? He was having the Lord's Supper. Out in space, like his church at home gave him a prepackaged wafer and some juice. I don't know that NASA allowed alcohol. And he took it to the moon with him. And he radioed back. And he says, let's, let's be grateful to God. And he took the Lord's Supper on the moon. And what the Lord's Supper is a celebration of gratitude. It is a celebration of remembrance of who Jesus is and what he secured for us. 
So he was worshiping God in outer space. Right? That's, that's worship. It's, it flows from a heart of gratitude. Number five, what, what is worship? Worship is generosity. And I, I would say this, that uh, the person who lacks generosity or display of generosity, their worship of God lacks integrity. Right, that there has to be this thing where we're undone, where we're so stirred and inspired by the love of God in our lives that it compels us to show love toward others. Right? We're such recipients of uh, love and grace and mercy and kindness from God that we should take from what we have and just share it with whomever. Right? So, so worship requires our generosity be given to others. And then the last one here I'll, I'll mention just for the, on worship. Worship is freedom. Worship is freedom. And this messes with people because isn't worship bowing before something and rendering service and loyalty to something? How can I be free if I'm bowed to something? And the thing is we're most free there because that's what we were created for. We enjoy the ultimate freedom when we do what it is that we were designed to do. We were made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. We were made to be worshipers of God. And any life, any life that is not that, it's not freedom, it's bondage. And that's what this war in this world is about. This world, our sin and flesh and spiritual forces of darkness, all it wants is to put us under bondage. It wants to hold us captive. It doesn't want us to enjoy freedom. It doesn't want us to experience the presence and the provision of God. It wants us to be yoked to shame and to guilt and condemnation, all of that. So our choice is this. Either we lean in, we stand up, we gird up, right? We stand firm, we do the work of a good soldier, we stand post, we do the battle, we replenish, we reconstitute, we redeploy, or we just simply don't enjoy God in our lives. And that just doesn't seem acceptable on any level. I'd rather do the hard work of the spiritual disciplines than have to go through the hard times of not having God active and alive in my life. All right. How do we do this worship thing? How do we how do we how do we worship, right? If this is a spiritual discipline, what do we do? What does this mean? What's step number 1? Where do I get started? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9 says, "Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The first battle that ever took place on earth took place in Genesis chapter 3, Garden of Eden. Devil shows up, he confronts Adam and Eve, and the first thing he does, he attacks their ability to worship God. He attacks the truth with a lie, leads them astray, and because of that, they can't worship God anymore. They were misled. They bought a lie. 
what the warning in Hebrews 13 is, if we want to be worshipers of God, do not be led astray. Do not be misled. Do not be swept away by false teachings. Because it does what? It weakens us. So what do we need? It tells us here, instead, be strengthened by grace. Let me repackage what that means. Be strengthened by Jesus. Instead of succumbing to a lie and foregoing freedom, go to the truth because the truth shall set you free. Jesus is the truth. Jesus sets us free. Don't be led astray. Don't be weakened, but be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by the reality of who Jesus is. Be strengthened by the truth of the gospel. Be strengthened by the hope that we have in Christ. Let that gird you. Let that strengthen you. That's how we stand guard. That's how we protect the freedom. Don't be led astray. Stand up. Gird up. Right? Strengthen up. Now, how do we do that? Because that sounds kind of nice. How do, we, how do we strengthen up in the grace? And just know this, that the spiritual discipline of worship requires discipline. Specifically, it requires the discipline of remembrance. This is why this is, why this is hard. We forget so easily. We stray so easily. We're actually easily deceived. Right? We have to gospel up. For several of us have been saying this for years, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. So what that means is that we always continuously, repetitively, constantly, every day, throughout the day, have to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We have to remember the love of God. We have to remember his grace. We have to remember that his spirit is alive in us. We have to remember that he secured an inheritance for us in heaven. And that truth, let that truth just strengthen your soul. Let it strengthen your heart that you may stand bold in the battles. That you may stand bold in the battles. And so, don't be led astray. Be strengthened by grace. Now, let's keep going. Verse 10 through 10 and 11. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. All right, we're going to gospel up right here really quickly. They're going to gospel up. We're going to reconstitute right here. This afternoon, tomorrow, this week, next month, we've got some battles coming. So right now, we're going to gospel up. We're going to remember the gospel. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to remember this. We're going to practice the discipline of remembering right now. We're going to use these verses to do this. this. These two verses are referring to what is called the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur. This is a day in Old Testament days in which the high priest that served in the Jewish temple once a year, they would sacrifice an animal on behalf of the entire nation of Israel, and this high priest would take the blood of this animal into what was called the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the temple, and there that high priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is what sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, 
The mercy seat is what we learned back in the day that if you remove it, will melt your face. Indiana Jones reference. Okay. <laughs> Stay with me. All right. So this priest, once a year, one animal on behalf of the entire nation, blood everywhere, would take this blood, take it into this one place, sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the inner chamber of the temple where the manifest presence of God resided. Why? To atone for the sins of God's people. Atone means make amends. Right? It means to make amends to, for the sake of forgiveness because the reality is that the wages of sin is death. Something has to die when someone sins. And by God's mercy, he made it to where this animal could be sacrificed in the place of the people. Following? After this animal was dead, they would take the carcass and they throw it outside the city. They they throw it outside the 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 camp where Israel would be parked. They they would throw it out in what was referred to in the Old Testament as the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the wilderness was a place that symbolized separation from God. It was an unholy place. All right, you ready for some gospel? Let's keep reading, verses twelve through fourteen. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is to come. So here's what happened. Year after year, the high priest would slay an animal, right? Year after year, year after year. This would happen, enter Jesus, the Lamb of God, died once and for all for the sins of all. Done. Where did that happen? It happened in a place called Golgotha. It's a place outside the city. A place outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was rejected, condemned, and crucified in an unholy place. And that is fitting. It is fitting that that is where Jesus died. Why? Because he who is holy came down from heaven, the place of holiness, to this unholy world to make unholy people holy. Like what it says here is that to sanctify his people, that's a Fancy word simply for saying to make us like Christ, to make us saints, to make us sinless in the eyes of God, to make us righteous. So here Jesus was rejected that we may be accepted. Jesus went out to the place where they sent outcasts that we may go to heaven one day. Jesus died that we may have sin, uh, sin, (laughs) that we may have life. It is fitting that that is where Jesus died. He came down to where we are, that we may become something great, that we may enjoy the freedom of Christ alive in us. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the truth and the grace of God. And so here's what we have to do. We have to remember that story all the time, every day, repeatedly, and it'll it'll give us the strength 
in the battles. It'll give us the strength to enjoy this freedom, this enjoyment of the presence of God each and every day. It allows us to reconstitute. That's why we say gospel yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Gospel up all the time. Remember Jesus and what he's done for us. Remember, and the more you do it, the more capable you'll be to go out there today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and endure the onslaught that would take this freedom from you. So we reconstitute. So what do you do with this gospel, though, right? Whether, you know, if you've never accepted Jesus, well, how do I accept Jesus? If you have accepted Jesus, well, what do I do now? Like, what do you do with the gospel? How do you respond to the gospel? And verse 13 tells us, go to him. Go to him. In other words, don't live in retreat. Move forward. Move toward him. Move forward toward Jesus. Worship. Worship him. Point your life to him. Orient your life to him. Identify with him. As opposed to identifying with the things of the world, identify with Christ. Instead of pursuing the things of the world, pursue Jesus, God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Pursue and identify. Point your life. Worship. Worship God. Let the gospel, let the gospel invite you to Jesus. And then live for Jesus. Now, as soon as we start doing that, what's going to happen? Battles, attacks will come our way. Your own heart will do battle with you for that. Let alone family and friends and the world and neighbors and co-workers and demons and all kinds of stuff. Everything out there will try to keep you from enjoying that freedom that Christ has secured for you as you start to worship. So what do you do? What do you do? I'll say it again. Gospel up. And that's for, verse 14. Verse 14 is, we don't seek this city that is an earthly city. We seek a city that is to come. See, when, when we practice the discipline of remembrance, we're not just remembering what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. We're remembering what Jesus promised to deliver in the future. Like, the fullness of this good news of Jesus isn't simply what he did. It's also what he will do. So what it says there is that we, there's a city to come. It's the city of God. It's the, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all descending. And in that moment, all who are followers of Christ will be citizens in this heaven. Streets of gold and pearl, that's not the main attraction. Jesus is there. And he will just shower us with grace and with wisdom and with glory forever and ever. So it requires that in our lives. Like when, when we, we, we define the word hope around here as like setting your gaze beyond the here and now and setting it future. That's what we're referring to, right? That's worship. It's setting your gaze on that which is heavenly and that which is eternal. So set your gaze forward. Now, what does that do that? Or what does that look like? I'm going to try to summarize all this up for us. Ready? Don't be led astray. Stick to the truth, which means stick to Jesus. How? Remember what he did. That's verses 11 and 12. 12, 13. Right? Remember what he did, how he died, how he was rejected so you may be accepted. Remember that. And remember what he will do, what he's promised for you in the future. Remember that. Gospel up. How do you respond to all that? You worship. 
How? You, you point yourself. You go to Jesus and you point yourself to Jesus. Now, how does that flesh itself out? Today, tomorrow, this week and next, next week and next month, what does that physically, tangibly look like? Verses 15 and 16 tell us. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Number one, what does worship look like? It's gratitude. And that's what verse 15 is getting at. We don't just simply offer God lip service. We offer him praises of thanksgiving because of what Jesus did and what Jesus has promised. Right? It is, it is gratitude for grace. And, and, you, and that's why I started with that summary of what worship is, that it's hard to be grateful to God or to God if we don't understand how wonderful he is. If we don't understand how sinful we are, if we don't understand how bad it was for us and how good it will be for us because of Jesus. And the more we understand that, the more we understand the the truth, the depth of the gospel, the more we'll be grateful to God. And the more grateful we are to God, the more we'll just praise him, we'll sing to him. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever just sang to God on your own? I really wonder if we did a survey how many people would actually say they had. And I don't mean that just mentally. I remember the first time I ever did that, and I felt really, really weird. I remember the first time I raised my hands in a crowd. felt really awkward and self-conscious. And then the more I read scripture, I was like, well, this, but this is what followers of Jesus do. Like, we can't help but respond to God in gratitude. Like, I mean, this is like the least... I could do, right, right, like lift my hands, like thank you, right, like if I can sing out loud in public, surely I can sing by myself, <laughs> then no one has to hear me except Jesus, right, it's like, and how sweet is that, that in the private moments, I like worship God, I'm like singing amazing grace, the greatest thy faithfulness, in Christ alone, you know, whatever the song, just sing with a grateful heart the praises of God. And it's, it's amazing what happens. He inhabits those moments. Like God literally unites himself to our hearts in those moments. And we, when we worship, we experience his presence unlike any other place. So sing his praises, vocalize his praises, but it's not just singing. Right? Worship includes singing. It's, it's not only that, because here it actually doesn't say sing. It's just talking about the, the lips, the fruit of lips. Well, that also means that when my, my brother or my sister in Christ, when they have a problem, that I come to them and I help gospel them up. I help remind them of Jesus and God's promises. Right? I'm encouraging them. I'm comforting them. I'm putting my arm around them, giving them a shoulder to cry on. Right? And I'm coming and saying, Jesus has got it. He did that 2,000 years ago. Just wait where we're going. He's got your stuff right now. He's got it. You're okay. Right? But it's not just that. It's also taking these words of the gospel to those who have not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So it's, it may be a person at work or in your family, a neighbor, whoever it may be. And any time you have the opportunity, 
uh, it doesn't have to be something weird. You're just talking about the weather and, and the storm yesterday, right? Tornadoes could have come through, and your neighbor's like, man, that was a real tough storm. Praise God that it didn't hit my house. You're praising God without being this awkward, you know, Bible-thumping bully to them, but they instantly know you believe in God, and you're giving credit to God that a storm did not just level your home. But that is worship God. That is the worship of God. I've said it for years. Like, we don't just worship God like in terms of our singing. Evangelism and missions and sharing and witnessing, that is an act of worship. And that's something we do for believers, toward believers, as well as those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. But all of it is the fruit of our lips rising from grateful hearts. And it's not just gratitude that's expressed. It's gratitude that's displayed, and we refer to that as generosity. And that's what verse 16 is about. Our worship of God will lack integrity if we do not share what we've been given by God with those that need it. We are called by the grace of God to do good to others, right? If we benefited from Jesus, we should be a benefit to others anyone and everyone else as much as we possibly can. We should be so inspired by the love and the truth of God that we want to share love and truth to others. That's worship. It's a grateful heart to God being displayed by giving him thanks and showing it that we're actually grateful by helping those around us who are in need. Not so easy, is it? Not easy. That's a tough, that's a tough battle. And here's the thing. If we will commit to just, Lord, I'm going to take a step forward. I'm going to try to embrace the spiritual discipline of worship, right? I want to try to embrace this discipline of remembering the gospel and gospeling myself. God will come behind you and be like a wind behind you and and your sail will get raised, and you will experience growth in Christ. You'll experience the very presence of God in your life. You don't have to live in retreat. You can live advancing freedom in your heart and in the hearts of others. And that's what worship looks like. You know, my, my prayer is that we would be a church that, I mean, we worship. Like, I want us to, when we come here on Sunday mornings, that we're here, we we lift our praises, our gratitude to God, but not just here, that we go out into the community, that we would do that, right? That we would show our gratitude by sharing the news and sharing generosity toward others. I want us to be a church where we stand firm, that we advance this freedom, right? We don't neglect it. We don't live in retreat. We don't let mistruth or falsehood mislead us, and we gospel ourselves daily. That's the kind of church we want to be. That is a love-filled, a faith-filled, a hope-filled church. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Father, so much for the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, so much that you have rescued us, that you have taken us out of the pit, Lord, and that you have taken our sin away from us. Lord, you are wonderful and you are spectacular and you are 
amazing. Help us to be in wonder of you, Lord. Help us to practice this spiritual discipline of worshiping you with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, Lord. Help us to love you, to love others, to be grateful to you and show our generosity to others. Lord, help us to do this hard work. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never accepted the gospel, Lord, that they would do so right now. That they would experience peace with you and and begin a life of enjoying you, Lord, the God of peace. And if there's anyone in here that's been living life in retreat, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them right now. That they may live just full of joy. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.